And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. What have our lives been kind of wrapped up in for the last six months? Is there anybody in here except maybe young ones that don't know? We'll call it the coronavirus, right? It's, it's affected uh, just every segment of society globally, right? We also hear of earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires that, that kill just an awful lot of people, both in ours and other countries across the world. On a personal level, Many of us struggle with what we might consider private tragedies. Loved ones who die untimely deaths, that qualifies. Uh, Accidents that leave devastating consequences. Children who suffer from birth diseases diseases or other other, uh, diseases. And naturally we ask, why? Why did this happen to this person? And perhaps a victim was a good, loving person. Meanwhile, we hear of scoundrels who live in relative happiness and prosperity. We question God's goodness and fairness. Sometimes we even question his existence because of tragedies. It's the classic philosophic problem of evil, right? How could an all-good and all-powerful God allow allow good people to suffer and wicked people to prosper? Well, the Lord Jesus gives us some answers to these difficult questions right here in our text this morning. Now, in in context of of what's going on, Jesus has just been rebuking the multitudes because they can read the weather. Speaking of weather, how many enjoyed that 60 degrees when you got up this morning? I saw hands over here without a word. I love it. That's it. Yeah, no, it was, it was really nice. But um, we, can, we can judge the weather, and he's, he's really condemning them because they're missing the big picture. The Messiah is in their midst, and they don't recognize it. Now, he uses an illustration of a man who's going to be dragged into court, and he's got a losing case. And if he were smart, he would settle with his, the people that he owes before he goes to court, and everything is taken away. The point is... We all have a debt of sin towards God. And if we're aware of our situation, we'll be quick to get right with God before we come into judgment. And then Luke reports in verse 1, on the same occasion, some were present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know any more about this incident than what is written right here. This is it. Apparently, Pilate had sent in his troops to break up a gathering of Galilean Jews who he thought were were dangerous. And the Roman soldiers didn't even respect the fact that the Jews were offering sacrifices to their God. They slayed them right there and their blood flowed with the sacrifices of the animals that they were sacrificing. And Jesus uses this current event to teach a spiritual lesson. Then he brings up another tragedy from recent history. When a tower fell uh, on 18 people and and killed them, and he uses that incident to reinforce this spiritual lesson that he's trying to teach. 
Now, Jesus was speaking to men who didn't apply spiritual truth to themselves. From his reply, Jesus' reply, we can surmise that these men were smuggling th- smugly thinking that those, those who suffered such tragedies were deserving of God's judgment. And the fact that they themselves had not been, you know, had been spared such tragedies meant that they were obviously pleasing to God. Well, twice in verses 3 and 5, he drives home the application. Were those who suffered greater sinners? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus tells a parable in verses 6 to 9 that underscores the point, if you don't repent, you too will soon face God's judgment. So rather than asking the question, why, in the face of tragedy, maybe we should be asking the question, what? What does God want to teach me through this tragedy? Well, the Lord's answer is that tragedy should teach us that since death and judgment are imminent, they're coming, we need to be ready through true repentance. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us multiple times that repentance itself is granted from you. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that for us this morning. Grant us repentance. Help us to see the ugliness of our own hearts and your holiness, Father. This drives us to repentance. So, God, do that work in our hearts and we'll give you praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before we examine these verses in more detail, let me make a passing comment on our Lord's kind of method, his technique here, if you will. He could have simply critiqued um, Pilate's cruel ways, but he would have missed a spiritual opportunity to pour truth into these people's lives. He could have just plunged into a philosophical discussion of the problem of evil. We like doing that, speculating why. And I've already said that's really not the question. But instead... If he'd have done that, those people would have went away unchanged. Instead, the Lord took this general topic. He homed in on the consciences of those who had brought up the subject. And he applies it to them twice. And then he further drives it home with the parable. Now, there's a lesson here for us right from the get-go. To take common subjects that come up, like the tragedies that we hear about, and apply them to the person's need to get right with God before he too stands before God. Just as the others who have been through this tragedy and have passed away, whatever it was. Well, philosophic discussions are kind of safe. But Jesus, he turns such discussions into personal need for repentance. We can't get around it. He always had in view the need of sinful souls before God. You know what? So should we. That should be the the tenor of our thought. Now, there are two kinds of tragedies in this text. Those that are caused by evil people, and then those caused by accidents or what we might call natural disasters. But the worst tragedy, as Jesus will go on to show, will be the final judgment. That involves not only physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God in hell. If we rightly... uh, learn from these earthly tragedies, we're going to avoid that ultimate and final uh, tragedy or judgment. So what should we learn from tragedies? First, tragedies stem, stem from God's curse because of the sin of the human race. It all goes back to Genesis 3. Jesus here assumes what the Bible teaches from Genesis 3 on 
that all people are by nature sinners who deserve God's judgment. We don't deserve anything else. As the book of Job, you may be familiar with the book of Job, as it shows, even the most righteous man on earth, that's Job, he has no case against God who has a perfect right to afflict that man with terrible suffering without answering to anyone for what he does. And that's a lot of what Job is about, the sovereignty of God. When we talk about good people or even innocent children, we're only speaking in relative terms. Some people are better in relation to other people. I'll give you that much. But you know what? Nobody is good in relation to God. And that's what counts. Well, also the Bible teaches that, a man's, uh, that man's sin was the cause of God's curse on creation. All natural disasters, floods, earthquakes. Speaking of floods, my niece, over one of my nieces over in Pace, sent us, and she doesn't live anywhere near the water, sent us a picture of her house that is, this is a big brick home. It's three foot in water throughout the house. And I'm going, there's no water around you. What in the world is going on? I'm going to have to ask God about that someday. But I mean, sit the picture, I'm going, we were there last, last November for Thanksgiving. It's a big, nice brick house, and it is, the whole neighborhood is three foot in water. It's like, good grief. So anyway, you've got these floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, you name it. You go on and on. Droughts, epidemics, diseases, accidents even. They stem from man's rebellion against God. Now, it's only going to be in the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to wipe away every tear and all death from his redeemed. And then there will no longer be any curse. But until then, even the redeemed live in a cursed world. Besides, the Bible teaches that there is often not a direct correlation between the degree of a person's sinfulness and what we would call temporal judgment. In other words, getting his due here and now. Now here Jesus twice asked, do you suppose that these who suffered were worse sinners than others because they suffered that way? Well, twice he responds emphatically, I tell you, no. Now in Jesus' day as well as in our day today, many had the mistaken view that the people suffer in this life in direct proportion to their sinfulness. If a tragedy hit someone, he must have done something to deserve it, even if it was done in secret. God is calling him out now. Even the disciples asked Jesus concerning the blind man there in John, man, uh, John 9, uh, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Huh. The wrong assumption was that someone was paying for their sins through the blindness of this man. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Sin had nothing to do with his blindness. He was born blind so that I could bring, he could bring glory to me now. Had nothing to do with sin. There is a general principle in the Bible, and it is general. Understand that word. That God blesses the obedient and that sinners reap the consequences of their evil ways. But there are many, many exceptions. And the reason is, we simply cannot put God in a box. Do you understand that this is what the three friends of Job were arguing about? Tragedy has struck you, you've done something wrong. That's called the law of retribution. You sin, you pay for it. There is a general sense in which that is true. But is, as we see from Job, 
God said he was a righteous man. Job was not sinning. I mean, was not being, you know, he didn't endure what he did simply because of sin. But there are many exceptions. The Bible shows godly men, young men, who are killed at a young age. John the Baptist, he had a long way to go. Very short ministry. And at the same time, there are ungodly men who live what seem to be long and relatively trouble-free lives, like Herod. The ultimate biblical resolution to the problem of evil and suffering is the final judgment. This is when every person who has not repented for his sin uh, will get his due, and every righteous believer in Christ who has suffered will be eternally rewarded. That's when the slate is going to be, the, the books are going to be balanced, let's put it that way. Now lurking just beneath the surface of the notion that someone who is suffering is a greater sinner. Okay, if that's the way you think, they're suffering, therefore they have sinned. You know what's driving that? Self-righteous pride. If someone else suffers some tragedy, we're quick to assume that it was their own fault. But if things are going well for us, we smugly assume that it's because God is pleased with us. But as Jesus shows, when, when tragedy strikes someone, rather than judging them, who should we judge? Ourselves. It's a call to look at ourselves. Now the lesson that we should learn and ponder is, second, tragedies show us that life is fragile and we've got to get right with God before we die and face His judgment. When tragedy hits someone else, whether it's a tragedy caused by evil people or one caused by some natural disaster, we all talk about it. We're glued to our phones, to our TVs, listening to it and watching the details over and over again as they're reported. But when it's over, most people go on unchanged with no thought of how it applies to them. Now, I saw this n n no better than in 9-11. You remember it happened on a Tuesday morning? Do you remember that? Do you remember where you were? Uh, some of us are old enough in here to remember where we were at when Kennedy got shot. Or when, uh, you know, today is a day that will live in infamy. You know, you'd have to be a little bit older to, to remember that one. There are things that we remember. We remember where we're at. Uh, I remember very vividly walking into celebration. We were having staff meeting that morning at 9 o'clock. So I walk in at 8.30 and everybody's around the TV and... Everything changed from that day forward, didn't it? A lot of things changed. A lot of things changed. That Sunday, now celebration is sanctuary seats, ugh, shoulder to shoulder, not packed, about 800. And we typically ran five to 600 in both services. We had two services, and we had five to six people, five, yeah, five or six, yeah, five or 600 in each service. That day, we had over 1,800 people come. There was standing room only in the entire, both services. And people were leaning forward in their seats. The people up in the balcony were, had, had their arms looking down. They wanted to know what in the world was going on. Seven days later, guess who was back in church? Our folks. Twelve days after the incident... And the people were like, oh, this just isn't that. Except in terms of, yes, we're going to get them. You know, who did this, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of what it meant to them, they had that right feeling on that Sunday. What does this mean? What does this devastation mean? What does this destruction, this tragedy means? It means you better look at your own heart. We've got two examples in our text, which I'll get to in just a minute. But it was here 
you know, it was low-hanging fruit. But within a week, people had forgotten about it and moved on. Jesus here shows that we should immediately take heart to ourselves by asking, what if it had been me? What if you were one of those 3,100 people that died in 9-11, just in, 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 in the Twin Towers? Would you have been ready to stand before God? Is He pleased with your life now? Because guess what, folks? Believe it or not, soon it will be me. Soon it will be you. None of the Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate that day knew beforehand that going to the temple would be the last thing that they would do on earth. If they had known what was about to happen, they would have stayed home that day, wouldn't they? None of those 18 people standing under that tower of Siloam knew that it was about to fall and crush them to death. None of, you know, if they would have, they would have gotten out of the way. They simply didn't know. None of us fully understand how a virus, a cold virus, through complications, can cause people to die. The point is, life is fragile. Even though you are healthy and think yourself young today, you could be in your coffin tonight. That is the reality that we live with. Because you are a sinner, you only have one pressing need. And this need far surpasses all other needs. Are you ready to meet God? And that's what tragedy should point us to. The ultimate reality, if I were in a tragedy, am I ready to, as they say, am I ready to meet my maker? Now the second time, Jesus uses the word uh, debtor rather than sinners. Now that relates back to his illustration in chapter 12 that we are all debtors to God. Either we're going to pay for our sin by eternal separation from God in hell, or we trust in the death of Jesus as that sinless substitute who bore God's wrath on our behalf. You've heard me say it a dozen times before. There's only two ways that sin is paid for. It's either by you in hell paying for your sins rightly under the just wrath of God, or trusting in Jesus and his completed work on the cross. So you've either got the cross or eternity in hell. That's, that's how sin is dealt with. Whenever we hear of a tragedy, we should immediately apply to our own hearts by making sure, first and foremost, that we are in the faith. The key question that we should ask ourselves is, am I truly repentant for my sins? Now, that's the third point about tragedies. They should drive us to repentance, which will spare us from perishing. Twice Jesus emphasizes, unless you repent. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, if you don't want to perish, then you'd better understand what Jesus meant by repentance. Well, first, the meaning of repentance is to turn to God from our sin. It's simply, it's, it's a Greek word that means to change your mind. So you're walking in sin, you're enjoying that, and all of a sudden you get exposed and you realize, ooh, I'm not right with God. I need to turn from my sin and I need to turn to God. That's repentance. Now, you've got to understand that repentance does not atone for sin. There's only one thing that atones for sin, and I mentioned it a minute ago. It's Jesus' death, His blood shed on the cross. That's where the atonement lies. 
We can weep over our sins for days, but our tears are not going to get us into heaven. Our sorrow for our sins does not somehow cancel out the debt that we owe. We can and should distinguish between uh, repentance and faith, uh, and, and we should do that, but they're like two sides of the same coin. So sometimes Scripture talks about re- uh, salvation linked with repentance. Sometimes it talks about salvation linked with faith. Sometimes it talks about salvation linked to repentance and faith. What was the, what was the message of both John the Baptist? Their very first message is recorded in Scripture. John the Baptist and Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repentance is integral. So faith refers to relying on God's promise of mercy in Christ, whereas repentance refers to turning to God from sin, and it always accompanies saving faith. It should really be inconceivable inconceivable that a sinner could lay hold with one hand of the promise of eternal life through the death of God's Son, and at the same time, cling to known sin. Does that make sense? That's not repentance. (laughs) Repentance is letting go. The hands that reach out to Christ to receive pardon must also let go of that sin that is being pardoned. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, there never was one washed in the blood of Christ who did not feel and mourn and confess and hate his own sin. Do you understand that that is one sign of assurance that you actually hate your sin? The world doesn't hate their sin. The world loves their sin and they want more of it. But as believers, when we sin, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it does something to us and it causes us to hate our sin. That is one of the strongest signs of assurance that you're actually a believer. Because that's the Holy Spirit doing that in you. And ain't you doing that. So faith and repentance are both initial actions which God grants at the moment of salvation and continually repeats this action that we have to practice for the rest of our lives. Faith and repentance. Remember, Scripture says we walk by faith. Yeah, we're saved. Saved by grace through faith. But we walk by faith. Now, a believer may experience hard times when his faith falters and he refuses to repent of, of known sin. But no true believer can live in unbelief and sin as a pattern of life. The Christian life is marked uh, by continual faith in the Savior's blood and a continual turning to God from sin. Now, in order to repent of our sins initially and to grow in repentance, we need to get a picture of God's absolute holiness and of his right to judge sinners. We need a deeper view of our own sinfulness down to the heart level. Not just actions, it's our thoughts, our mind, our heart. Both Jesus' words in verses 3 and 5 and the parable that follows assume God's sovereign right to judge every sinner. He is the creator and the rightful owner of all that exists. It's his vineyard and we are his fig trees planted there for his purpose, for his use. Now as the owner of the fig trees, God has the right to expect these trees to produce fruit for his use. 
If they do not produce, he's perfectly just to cut them down and throw them into the fire. No one dares say, what do you think you're doing if God decides to cut down an unfruitful tree? He made it for his purpose. He owns it. He can do with it as he desires. The more we see of God's sovereign and holy right to judge his creation, the quicker we will be to repent of our sins. But also, to repent initially and to grow in daily repentance, we, almost, we also must see our utter sinfulness and rebellion before him. The owner of the vineyard planted these trees within the confines of the wall of the vineyard. They enjoyed his protection, his nurture, his care. They drank up water from his supply and nutrients from his soil. But they were useless in the purpose for which the owner planted them. They didn't produce any fruit. In the same way, every person who has ever lived on this planet was created by a good and merciful God for his purposes, to bring him glory. Every person breathes God's air. You drink God's water. You eat God's food. You partake of the life that God has granted you in his beautiful creation. Yet how many live only for themselves, for their own pleasures, with no regard for God or for his glory? Now through creation and conscience, Romans 1, Romans 2, everyone knows that there is a holy God, yet Scripture says that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And they disregard God's merciful warnings. If God should bring tragedy into their lives, rather than humbling themselves and confessing their own sin and their need for God's pardon, they often rail at Him as if they deserved only blessing from His hand. Proverbs 19.3 catches this so well. It says, A man's own folly ruins his life. So what ruined his life? His own folly Yet his heart rages against the Lord. Why has God done this? No. <laughs> You're there because of your own folly. You need to turn to God, not rail against him. Well, Jesus is teaching that because of our sin, none of us deserves exemption from tragedies. If we all got what we deserved, we would instantly perish. Now, since life is fragile and the future is Uncertain, we all need to get right with God before we die. Now, the way to get right with God is through genuine heart repentance, where we confess, confess our sins to Him and, and turn to Him from sin to receive His mercy. Now, when we see someone else going through a tragedy, it should drive us to apply all of these things to ourselves with that basic question, am I ready? What if the tragedy had been on me? Do you understand that tragedies that don't happen to you are God's gracious reminders that a worse end than a horrible death awaits us that if we do not repent. Back in chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But you, you may ask, okay, well, well how, how can I know that my repentance is genuine? 
if repentance, according to Jesus, uh, and, and, uh, if it, if it, if it uh, spares me from perishing eternally, I want to know that my repentance is real. Well, the second thing about repentance is that there's a test. And that test is fruitfulness. Repentance results in fruitfulness. The parable underscores the message of verses five, or 1 through 5 that judgment is approaching and that we must bring forth the fruits of repentance before it is too late. Now, the, primary, the, the, uh, the parable primarily applied to the nation of Israel, which was about to reject her Messiah and come under national judgment. The three years of the parable, that may refer to three, the three years of Christ's ministry. Or it may be just a way of saying that there has been sufficient time for the nation to bear fruit, the fruit of repentance. And if they don't bear that fruit soon, they're going to be cut down. But of course, the parable also applies to individual repentance, especially to those of us in the church. Now, this fig tree that he's talking about, it wasn't a wild one that grew up on the side of the road where somebody had just eaten a fig and thrown the seed and it, oh, it made a tree. No. The tree was planted by the owner within the walls of his very own vineyard. Now, that points to a special privilege of those who sit in church and hear the Word of God. This is God's immediate vineyard right here. And we're throwing out seeds. We're, we're, we're trying to water. We're trying to, you know, help you in, in a variety of ways. Now, if such people, they're enjoying this benefit, let's call it, if they do not respond to the message of God's grace by repenting of their sins and seeking to be fruitful in God's kingdom, then they're not just neutral. Jesus says they're destructive to the owner's purpose. They're just taking up ground that could be, could be used for a fruitful tree. They're endangering their own souls and harming others as well. So you ask, what are the fruit of repentance? The fruits of repentance. Well, they include this whole process of growth in holiness that begins at salvation and it continues in our lives until we come into the presence of the Lord, whether that be by death or by Jesus coming again. I'd much rather have it be by Jesus coming again. That would be pretty cool. That's one earth event I would like to be here for. May not. We'll see. Maybe God will be gracious. Fruitfulness is Christ-likeness in our character and in our conduct. The fruit of the Spirit is a succinct list of what that fruitfulness should look like. That's Galatians 5.22. You can look that up. Now, while believers will never be sinlessly perfect in this life, we understand that. Uh, they will make continual progress in holiness. And not just outwardly, but in the heart as they walk in repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's one other aspect of this parable that I haven't mentioned yet, and that's the role of the vineyard keeper. He appeals to the owner to give him time to dig around the fig tree, to fertilize it, and to give it another year. Be patient. Give it one more year, and if it doesn't produce fruit, then I'll cut it down. Man, this is a beautiful picture of God's patience and mercy in Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that a tragedy has not hit you should show you God's great patience. If you have not repented of your sins and, and you're not bearing fruit in God's vineyard, then guess what? There still is time. 
But don't mistake God's patience to mean that his axe will never fall. His patience does have a limit. Death and final judgment could hit you at any moment. Your need to respond to God's offer of repentance and pardon is urgent. That's the best word to describe it. Urgent. That is your one need. I talked about it early on in the, in, in the message. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know God through His Son, that is the one pressing thing in your life. I don't care if you're six months late on your mortgage, if your wife's cheating on you, I care about those. I'm, they, they pale in comparison to the reality that if you are not in Christ, you could be facing eternal judgment. Well, life is fragile. And none of us are exempt from tragedies. I had a tragedy in my life 28 years ago. And as soon as it happened and it was starting to sink in, this was when the first hour or so of, of, of hearing of it, my initial thought was, this happens to other people. This doesn't happen to, this doesn't happen to us. This happens to other people. No, it can happen to anybody and it does None of us are exempt from tragedies. But if you have fled to Christ for refuge and you're bringing forth fruit of repentance in your life, then you're ready if tragedy strikes. You will not perish. And that's what we all want in the end. We're familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Should, if tragedy should strike you personally, in other words, God takes your life tragically in whatever way, are you ready to stand before Him today? Let's pray. Father, this is a, uh, a, just a serious call that you put forward uh, for us to consider. That life is short. It is so very uncertain. And God, we need to be ready because we could be in your presence uh, tonight. So God, I pray that you would help of us, help us uh, as believers and as those who do not know you, that do not know your son Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would uh, bring your power to bear upon it. God, and that you would convert souls today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is just, this goes right to your heart, nobody else's. Okay, you can probably look around the room. I can look around the room, and I can I can point out some people in here that have had what I would consider tragedies in their life. Um, you, you, I'm going to pick on you two. Riley, uh, Riley's uh, parents just passed away within what six months of each other? Eight months. I mean, it was a blow. But where are they now? They're with the Lord. Okay, they're on the right side of that equation. Are you on the right side of that equation? So that if you die today, you know that you're in right standing with God. If not, you can do that this morning. Turn to Him. That's Repent. Forsake your sin. Turn to God. Ask Him to be merciful to you. And He'll do it. Scripture assures us of that. Your life will change forever. <laughs> For the good. If you're a believer... Uh, this, just, this is a good teaching opportunity, excuse me, teaching opportunity for us when others are talking about tragedy and they don't seem to be 
coming to the same conclusion that Jesus is, yes, they died. Are you ready to die? That's the point of this whole thing. Other people's tragedies make us look at ourselves and say, am I ready? Because I could just as easily be part of a tragedy this afternoon and never see my... Is my wife here? She's in the nursery. See, I could have a heart attack and die right here. That's okay. I know I'm going to be with the Lord. I know she's going to be okay. She loves the Lord. But if you're not sure, man, make sure today. Paul says today is the day of salvation. So I encourage you, if the Lord is speaking to you in anything along those lines, like you need to get something right with God, come share it with me. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.